What do you think about when you hear Jesus? Who is he? What would he do if he were in this room with us right now? What, 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 would, he, what would he say to you personally? And you might say, I don't really believe in Jesus or I don't really know. And, and that's okay. Just what impression do you have? Just take a second and think about that. All right, so take that thought, hold it in the back burner while I read the passage. I'll tell you when you can bring it out uh, again. Our passage, John chapter 2, very familiar, uh, miracle of Jesus's. And so the, the, the words will be on the screen if you need them. John chapter 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She replied to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. And I am reminded of what the psalmist said in in chapter 40 when he says, I am poor and needy, but you have had thought for me, for you are my help and my deliverer. So Father, for me and for all of us in this room, we come before this holy moment, poor and needy. But we also recognize that in Christ, you have had thought for us. And so we look to you to sustain your word, to enliven your people do it all by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this famous story of Jesus changing water into wine, you've probably all heard it. If you haven't read it, you've probably at least uh, heard about it. And, and if you read the, ter- the narrative, the text, you know, it comes right at the beginning of John's gospel. It's right there in chapter 2. And, and if you, so if you read this narrative, you see that John is like rushing to get us to the story, rushing to get us what is the very first thing, the very first act, important event that the most influential person and leader on earth is going to do. Uh, you know, John is like a young child. You've ever been around like a six or seven-year-old kid, and they, they just have to tell you something. You know, they run up to you. They won't be interrupted. They're not going to wait. They're not going to let you finish your conversation. They're going to tell you now. They, they, they have to say what they have seen, what they have heard. That's sort of how John, he's like a child rushing up. Let me tell you what happens, what the very first thing that Jesus, the most influential person in the world, actually does. And so he tells the story. What, what happens here? Well, Jesus, you know, gets invited to a wedding. It's a pretty commonplace activity. Probably all of you in this room have been to a wedding. And, and at the wedding, there's a crisis. Now, listen, we, we think that we know how to party here. You know, and if you go to a good wedding reception you, you, and you ask somebody next day, how was, how was so-and-so's wedding? How was reception? Oh, it was an unbelievable party. I mean, we, we danced until 2 in the morning. It was just phenomenal. Well, 
in their day, they would, they would party for seven straight days at a wedding. I mean, it was, it was a serious reception party. And uh, they really, I mean, they really knew how to do it. And so at, the, at, at some point in the wedding, maybe it's like day five, they run out of wine. There's no wine. And so Mary comes to Jesus. Jesus, they have no wine. What are, what are you going to do? Jesus says, okay, we'll take these six stone jars, fill them up with water, about 150 gallons, transforms it miraculously, makes it into wine, and uh, the master of the feast tastes is the best wine I've ever had. Crisis averted. Social faux pas uh, avoided, right? The, the young kids getting married, probably young teenagers, probably 14, 15 years old, uh, they don't have to be embarrassed before all their friends. The party ended in five days instead of seven. It's a nice story, right? I mean, it, it's a pretty good story. It's pretty cool. Jesus changed wine to wine. But isn't it a little bit anticlimactic? I mean, this is the signature calling card. First miracle John is rushing to tell us about Jesus, the most influential person ever to live. And Jesus himself kind of heightens the pressure. You know, in chapter 1, verse 50, he says to Nathaniel, uh, you, you saw this and you believed, but you will see greater things than this. And then, bam, you know, water um, into wine. I think there's, there's even more pressure added, you know, in, when we see verse 11. What does verse 11 say? And verse 11 is kind of the summation of the story. This is what it all means. This is what the whole point of it was. Uh, verse 11, he did the sign and it manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. I mean, really? I mean, water into wine, it's nice, but is it like the first great thing you would have done? I mean, I would have done something for the crowds. You know, I would have like marched into the biggest city, into Rome itself, and I would have like levitated the Colosseum over my head and just held it there. So what do you think about this? You know, I would have made Caesar bow down before me, and uh, I would have done all these great things for the big crowds. But Jesus does a small thing from a small crowd in a small podunk village, really. I mean, Cana was not much to speak about. I mean, think even our own magicians, look, David Copperfield would probably not be caught dead doing this miracle. I mean, he, he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. That's a miracle. You know, I mean, that is what uh, we would expect from the most influential person. And in part, that's the point. Jesus is not a common magician sent to entertain crowds and wow the people. He won't be domesticated like that. He doesn't do miracles in that way or that reason. So I think, I think we come to this passage, we've got three options. Based on what verse 11 says, based on what we just said about the story being anticlimactic, there's really three, three options. Number one, we can say, you know, John, he's telling the story, John is really a boring person. You know, John, he doesn't get out much. Um, he doesn't really, he just hasn't seen a whole lot. And so this is a big deal to him. I think we've got to rule that out. Why? Because John is going to go on to see amazing things from Jesus, what we would consider amazing, raising of Lazarus from the dead, raising of Jesus himself from the dead. Read the book of Revelation, which he wrote. He sees dragons and beasts and heaven itself open and thrones and angels. So John is not a boring person who doesn't get out much. I mean, he knows what's going on, but yet he says it manifested his glory and they believe. So I don't think that's an option. Second option could be that, you know, Jesus, maybe Jesus isn't really all he made it out to be. Maybe he's not that great uh, after all. I don't really think that's an option because we see the things that he goes on to do later in his life, and we see the impact he has now had uh, in the world. So what's the third option? The third option is that there is actually, I think, more than meets the eye. There is more here than we initially see. Why? Well, one is because of the, the pressure of verse 11, that this manifested his glory. It's the calling card. John rushes to tell us this first thing about Jesus. And two, it's the word sign. In verse 11, 
John is very, very careful to never call what Jesus is doing a miracle. We call them all miracles, really, and that's fine. But John is very careful not to use that word. He uses the word sign, and he uses it again and again and again. What is a sign? It's something that points us forward to a greater reality, right? I mean, it's summertime. A lot of you are taking vacations. Think about if you're going to the beach with your family. You're driving. You've been driving 11 hours uh, all day long. You get to a sign that says seaside, 60 miles ahead. Do you suddenly whip the car over into the, into, the, into the median or the side of the road, get out the beach towels and the cooler, start camping out under the sign? No, absolutely not. That would be silly because it's a sign that's pointing you forward to a greater reality. That's part of what John is doing here. He's saying this act, this miracle, is itself a sign that points us to something greater. Maybe a better illustration. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege to participate in uh, an adult scavenger hunt. And uh, I guess I have to say adult because I didn't really know adults did these things. I was only like youth groups that did them or something. But uh, it was an adult scavenger hunt, and it was put on by Mike and Sarah Dinkoff. And, and the thing was, it was absolutely amazing. And just to give you a picture of how it was, uh, there's, there's four people on each team, two couples. And uh, we, we started in their front yard, and they gave you this big basket of cellophane wrap, had all kinds of stuff in it, everything you're going to kind of need for uh, the scavenger hunt as well as your first clue kind of mixed in there. So it was like, you know, mark, set, go, run out to your car, get in your vehicle, start speeding away. You're digging through the uh, basket, trying to find your clue. On the, bo- the first clue is taped on the bottom of the basket. It's a ticket to a St. Louis Cardinals game. So you have to drive downtown to the stadium. There's a game going on. You have to gain admittance to the stadium, work your way through the crowd, find your seat, and on the back of your seat is taped your next clue. Yeah, I said the first service, Mike and Sarah will have more comments about this sermon than I will because they did this scavenger hunt. Um, the first clue was the Cardinals game. And so uh, some of the teams, they actually walked into the game and they stopped. There's a Cardinals game going on. Albert Pujols is batting. So they start watching, you know, watching the game. Those would be the teams that lost. Some of them are sitting here in the room. I have to call their name. But they didn't, you know, Cardinals game, it's a nice story, right? It's a nice, it'd be a nice ending in itself, be a nice prize in itself. But it actually was there to point us forward to greater glory, to the reality of the party that was waiting on us full of like brats and burgers and cakes and cookies. And there was a huge blow up house for all the kids to play in. And, uh, you know, for the winner, for the winner of this, I don't know who that would be, but they received this trophy. (laughs) Has our name, Beatonball's Rights there, inscribed there. I'll just set that here and let you guys, if I get boring, you can look at that. So the scavenger hunt, the, the Cardinals game was great, but it was actually pointing us forward to the greater glory of victory. And uh, in a lot of ways, that's what John is doing here. He's kind of setting us on a scavenger hunt and saying, this was a pretty amazing story, but it's not just that Jesus changed the water into wine. That was a sign. And it was there to point us to something greater. What is that? Let's talk about a few things. First thing is that John wants to show us uh, that Jesus is actually thinking here about something much deeper, something much deeper than just changing water into wine. Why do I say that? Look at his response in uh, verse 4. Mary comes to him. It's just a normal response. Look, Jesus, they're out of wine. What does he say? My hour has not yet come. Huh? Is this, where is this coming from? What is he talking about? How is that in any way a sensical response? Jesus, they're out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' hour is in the book of John. You'll see it repeated. If you have a different translation, you might say his time. Um, His hour, his time is the day of his crucifixion. It's the day of his death. 
is the day when he will die for the salvation of people. And he says, which makes it even sound less sensical, really, because, uh, you know, Jesus, they're out of wine. The day of my death has not come. Uh, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. I struggled over this verse for a while, and, and, and Tim Keller actually helped me, I think, understand it a bit. And this is what, this is what he says. Uh, he says, listen, if you're single, Jesus was single. If you're single and you go to a wedding, typically, what are you thinking about? You're typically thinking about your own wedding, right? You know, will I get married? When will it be? Who will it be with? What will it all be like? And there's a sense in which Jesus in this moment is also thinking about his own wedding day. The wedding day when he'll be wed to the people of God. Wed to the people for whom he will die in his crucifixion. And so he's thinking about this day. And he's not just thinking about the wine he's about to have to provide for these young teenage kids. But the wine he's going to have to provide for his own wedding. He's thinking about the wine of his own blood. And as someone else said, he sits there in the midst of celebration, sipping the coming sorrow. Sits in the midst of celebration, he's sipping the coming sorrow. His wedding is not going to be a day of celebration. It's a day of mourning, not a day of life. It's a day of death. And so Jesus sits at this wedding, and he's thinking about his own wedding. He sits where he's being asked to provide uh, physical wine, as it were, and he thinks about the cup that he's going to have to pour out, the wine he's going to have to drink and provide in his own wedding and his death on the cross. And if you notice here, there's, there's no mention of the groom's name. And I think what's happening is John's drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus himself is the true groom. Jesus himself is the true bridegroom, come to provide the wine of his own blood. Jesus is the one who's come to say to his people, I am ravished with you. I am walking down the aisle to meet you. I'm making my vows to you, making my commitments to you. Can you imagine the profound effect if you, if you really took that in to your life? If you really took that in to your heart? Imagine what that would do to your worry, to your, to your anxiety, the fact that the God of the universe says, I will be your true bridegroom. I will make my vows to you. I am committed to you. Imagine what it would do to your own marriage or lack of marriage or desire to be married since it relativizes your need to have the perfect marriage because what he says is that you don't have to have the perfect marriage today because the perfect marriage awaits you. The true bridegroom, Jesus himself, awaits you. And so John leads us on the scavenger hunt, leading us, showing us new signs. And uh, one of the other things he, he wants to show us is the nature of what Jesus came to do. It's there in verse 6 at 7. This is what it says. Now there were six stones of water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill it with water, filled it, and they filled it to the brim. Six jars of 20 or 30 gallons. I mean, this is 150 gallons of wine. So it would be like 750 bottles of wine, if you can imagine. That's what Jesus makes there. And, and he's, he doesn't have to tell us how big the jars are, right? But he wants to be specific to tell us each jar is 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus is not just topping them off. He is, and it says, fills it to the brim, right? It's not just, well, they poured a little in there. They fill it to the brim, and Jesus makes 150 gallons of wine. And when he does this miracle, when he does this sign, uh, it's as he is saying, it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, do you remember what the old 
poet said? Remember the old sayings about wine? Remember what the Old Testament said? Remember what the prophets said about wine and the day of wine? He's like Morpheus in the Matrix, if you've ever seen that. Morpheus is always drawing our attention back to the prophecy and how it's going to be fulfilled. The prophets, they said that there was a time of wine coming. They said it was a time coming of feast and celebration and partying and joy and celebration. There was a time coming where the heavens would be open and God himself would come, the Messiah would come, and God would be revealed. What would that time look like? Just a couple of verses, just give you a snippet of what the prophets say it'll be like. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 18 says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Amos chapter 9, verse uh, 13 and 14. The mountains will drip sweet wine. The hills will flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people. They'll rebuild the ruined cities. They'll plant vineyards and they will drink their wine. One more, Isaiah 25. What the prophet said, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, well, uh, of aged wine, well-refined. And what will that be about? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nation. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will remove for the Lord has spoken. What is Jesus saying here? The prophet said a day was coming when the mountains would drip with wine. And Jesus is saying that day is here. The prophet said there's a day coming when there will be someone, some Messiah who will come and he will lift the veil from the nations. He will uh, swallow up death. He will defeat death forever. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And that one is here, Jesus is saying. When he makes that wine, he's saying this is a sign that says this day has come. The kingdom of God is here. And he's serving, notice that uh, the warrior has come to defeat death. The prophet said the, the, the mountains would run with wine. And Jesus said, I'm here to make it happen. If you're paying attention to the prophecies, he's here. He's saying, look, I am the real master of the banquet. What is my salvation like? It is like a party. It is like a feast. It is like a banquet. It is like filling up to the top of the mountains, the earth with wine, the best wine you have ever tasted. Listen, the, the, the reason Jesus does not let this party die, look, it's not a big deal really, is it? I mean, the party goes five days instead of six or seven. Is, is anybody really offended? Is world history really changed if Jesus doesn't do this miracle? Probably not, right? I mean, he saves this young, these young kids from their embarrassment and social faux pas. But the reason he doesn't let the party end is because he's symbolizing to us that in the kingdom of God, he is the master of the banquet and the party will never end. The merrymaking, the celebration, the joy, the party itself will go on unending forever and forever. And so now come back to that picture that you had in the beginning. When I said, think about Jesus, who is he? What picture do you have in your mind? Come back to that picture and then let this picture of Jesus explode into your mind. How many of you thought about, if Jesus was here right now, he'd probably throw a huge party. How many of you think about God as the God who goes around throwing parties? Jesus is constantly comparing the kingdom of God to that. Look at Luke 15, look at, look at other passages. 
How many of you guys thought of God as the master of the banquet, the leader of the party, the host of the party? So many of you have trouble relating to God because you think he's this monster in the sky. He's just ready to kind of bolt me down at any little misstep I take. Or, you know, he's the most boring, irrelevant person that I could ever imagine having anything to do with. But now that you've seen him as the master of the feast, how can you reject him on that basis? He's the head of the party. So I would say to you, are you, like, are you a partier? I've never heard that application in a sermon before. College students finally woke up. They're listening. I don't mean it quite like that, but listen, are you a partier? I mean, do you know the kingdom of God, in a sense, partially, will be a party? It'll be a banquet. It'll be a feast. Are you a partier? I mean, I don't mean do you have, like, are you extroverted? Are you the, you know, you're the life of the party? Do you have a certain personality type? I don't mean that, but are you somebody that enjoys life? Are you somebody that, that people enjoy partying with? Do you enjoy life in that way? Would the world look at you and think, Jesus must be the most boring, irrelevant person ever to encounter, or they look at you and say, Jesus, Jesus must be the master of the feast. Jesus must be the ringleader of this whole thing, this whole party. I think Christians should absolutely throw the best parties in the world because we have the most to celebrate. And this isn't just pie in the sky. Lots of us are sitting in moments of sorrow right now. But listen, what John is telling us is that Jesus sat in the midst of celebration, sipping the coming sorrow, so that we, even today, even if we're sitting in the midst of sorrow, could sit sipping the coming joy. That's what he came to do. He's the master of the party. And so the scavenger hunt kind of continues because it's not really just about the wine. It is about the amount of wine. And, you know, John wants us to see really how lavish the gift is. I already said this, but the fact that Jesus doesn't just make a little bit. I mean, he doesn't just say, you know, here's a couple glasses, another round on me. He doesn't say something like that. He says, here's 150 gallons of wine for this party. And it's not just the, the quantity of it, it's the quality. Look at verse 9 and 10. What is, what is the quality like? After he makes it, he sends it to the master of the feast, kind of the, the MC, the host of the, of the evening. The master tasted it, and he said, everyone else serves the good wine first. Then when people have drunk freely, they serve the poor wine. In other words, in those days, what you would do, you know, two, first two days, you bring out all the good stuff, right? The good food, the good wine. And then people's palates are kind of satiated or, or you know, the, the verb here is actually they get a little bit tipsy. And then they really don't care what the quality of the wine is anymore. They really just care that there is wine. And so that's, that's, that's what typically people do. But he's, the master of the feast says, no, the very best wine you brought at the beginning doesn't even compare. doesn't even hold a candle. This is the best, tastiest, headiest wine I have ever tasted. Now, every other newlywed couple, when you're a newlywed, when you're, when you're about to get married, when you're at your wedding day, what are you doing? You're receiving gifts the whole time, right? That's like the, the only good part about being engaged and not being married. It's like you're getting gifts from people. And you're getting things that your wife wants that you don't have to buy later. So that, that's like, that's the great thing. You're getting gifts. These people would have been getting gifts. But what does Jesus do? He's the true bridegroom. And did he come and say, bring me all your gifts? Instead of getting the gifts, instead of receiving the gifts, he's actually bestowing them. He's lavishing them out on the people. Look at this picture of who I am. 
Again, the world's not going to stop if this party doesn't go on. But Jesus says, this is a little sign. It's a little symbol. And if I am this lavish to provide 150 gallons of wine to simply save a couple teenage kids from embarrassment, how lavish would I be if you came to me? How lavish would I be if you came to me for forgiveness? How lavish would I be if you came to me for healing? How lavish would I be if you came to me for your life, for your purpose, for everything about who you are? Are you lavish? Are you generous? How can you look at a God like this? How can you look at Christ in this way, demonstrating his lavishness, and not also be a generous person, not also be a lavish person? Now, I think in a lot of ways, I don't have to actually preach this point very hard at Green Tree because so many ways I learned this here. Because some of you have been some of the most generous people that I've ever seen, generous to other people and generous to, to me and my family. I've received so much from uh, being in your presence. And I think, and so I preach it, mainly, may, maybe it's just more for me than for any of you, but I think over the last year, uh, God has been working in this issue of generosity in my heart. And he's, it's as if he's been kind of saying this to me. Jeremy, you know what? You know, you, you, do, the, you do the minimum. You, give, you tithe. You give your 10%. Maybe you do a little more if you need to. You're not generous. You're not a generous person. You're not a lavish person. That, that spark of generosity is very weak in your heart. I've been seeing that that mindset is just, in a way, very foreign to me. The desire to be a lavish, generous person. You know what else I think God has said to me is that, you know what, Jeremy? You, you use the fact that you're not extremely wealthy as an excuse to not be more generous. To not be more lavish. But I see, I've seen so much generosity here. I see people that have beheld a generous God and who give freely. I mean, I was out to lunch with an elder one day and two, you know, uniformed servicemen came in and he just had the waiter come over, bring their tab, paid it, didn't think anything else about it. That was just his mindset. And I would have never thought of it. I would have never thought to pay for their meal. And oh, how different the world would be. What would it be like if the world looked at Christians and what they saw, and when they, when they saw Christians, instead of saying, how would you describe a Christian? Instead of saying judgmental, hypocritical, what if they said, and lavish. They're just generous people. They just love throwing parties. They're just, they're just fun to be around. What would that be like? That's who Jesus is. That's the kingdom he's setting up. And so the scavenger hunt continues. One more thing that, that, that John wants to show you. He, kinda, he just showed us, look, Jesus is lavish. Jesus says, I spend it all for you. I will spend not just 750 bottles of wine. I'll spend all my wine, all my blood for you. He wants to show us one more thing. He wants us to see that when Jesus comes, the old is gone and the new has come. Look at verse 6 one more time. He tells us what the six stone water jars are there for. They're there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, he doesn't have to tell us that. Jesus can choose water from anywhere. He could create it out of thin air if he wants. Um, and he doesn't have to tell us what they're for, but he says they're there for the Jewish rites of purification. And there's six of them. They're, they're one less than seven, one less than the sign of complete fulfillment and perfection. 
And what, he's, what Jesus is saying is fill them to the brim because the days of the Jewish age, the days of, of, of it being all about observance and ritual and cleansings and all these things, those days have been good. Those days have prepared us. Those days have brought us to this point. And now in me, they are fulfilled. They are filled to the brim. And I have changed them all in to new wine. And what he's showing us is that the gospel itself, now the gospel cannot be contained in a list of rules. It cannot be contained in a code of morality. It can't be contained in a new set of expectations that God has for you. Jesus did not come and die to give you a new set of rules to follow, to give you a new set of teachings or or, uh, expectations. I mean, sure, he has teachings. He has all those things. But ultimately, he came, died, that you could be ravished with his glory, that you could be filled up on the spreading of the joy of the banquet of his glory. Isn't that what verse 11 says? I mean, how do you become a Christian? How do you believe? How do you stay a Christian? How do you keep on believing when times are difficult and tough? Jesus manifests his glory and his disciples believe. His disciples had already believed. Read chapter one. They said, you're the son of God. They see further into him. They see deeper into him, and they believe further. They're withheld. They're held in their belief, in their perseverance. What happens? Somebody named Jesus that never really caught your eye before it. Suddenly, you begin to hunger. Suddenly, you begin to see something in him you never saw before. How do you believe? You begin to see something there. What, what is this thing uh, called gospel? What is this thing called forgiveness? What is, who is this person named Jesus? You begin to want him. You begin to hunger in some sense, thirst in some sense. And he manifests his glory. And you see it and you believe. And so don't buy the lie that Christianity, that your faith is simply another way, another path up the mountain to fulfilling God's expectations of you. The gospel says, Jesus came to fulfill God's expectations for you. And that's why Jesus can say, the old is gone and the new has come. Everything now hinges on me. You have to come through me. Isn't this the lesson that Mary learns? Now, some of of you who are mothers in the room, if you were listening when I read verse four at the very beginning, you might've chafed just a little bit, right? Because she comes to Jesus with a very... um, you know, inane requests. It's not a big deal. Jesus probably isn't doing a whole lot. I mean, Jesus, we're out of wine. How about just say, yes, ma'am, and go along and, and do it. What does Jesus say? Woman, why do you concern me with these things? Or he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? It doesn't say mom. Some of your translations say dear woman, not in the text, it's sentimentalism. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me. Jesus is being disrespectful, it sounds like. I asked uh, my wife, Amy, I said, what, you know, what, when Jude gets a little older, our son Jude, when he gets a little older, what, what if you ask him to do something and he calls you woman? And I won't tell you what she said. It wasn't pretty. But Jesus is basically saying, listen, listen, Mary. He's very careful not to call her mom because he's basically saying this. For 30 years, I've been your son. I've even been providing for you. Mary's probably a widow, so Jesus has probably been providing for her. For 30 years, I've been your son. I've been providing for you. But now I've started my ministry. Now I'm on the path 
to my wedding day. And you can no longer come to me as your son. You too must come to me as your savior. There's no more inside track. I mean, think about how hard this must have been for Mary. I mean, even the most important influential political figures of our day, I mean, still the mom's got to have an inside track. I mean, I'm sure that George Bush's mom can get a, you know, can just walk right into the White House. I'm sure it's not a big deal. I'm sure she has an inside track there, but not with Jesus. Jesus says, if you're coming to me with requests, if you're coming to me with something, you come as my disciple, even if you are, even if you are my mother. And what does Mary say? She doesn't say, uh, how dare you talk to your mother that way? She doesn't say, you know, I, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of this world. <laughs> to her great credit, what does she say? Verse five. She looks at the servants. She says, look, whatever ridiculous thing he might ask you, do whatever he tells you. He might ask you to do something ridiculous like fill up six stone jars with water. I don't know what purpose that would serve with wine. But whatever he asks you to do, do Whatever he tells you. And Tim Keller says, if, you know any, if you've been around Christianity long enough, you know that that's what a lot of your Christian life will probably look like. You go to Jesus. Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I need to be doing this. Jesus, this is what my life should really look like right now. This is what I want from you. And he does something completely different. Totally different circumstances. Something you would never expect. Something you would never ask for. And what Mary's basically saying to the servants, look. I know who he is. He's the son of God. He's the true bridegroom. He's the lavisher of all gifts. He's the one who came to make the world run with wine. He's the master of the feast. Do you think that you know better than him? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So John has been telling us kind of this whole time that this story is less about water being changed to wine and it's more about the one who changed it. It's less about miracles. It's more about sign. And really, every single thing in your life can function this way, can function as a sign. No matter what circumstances are plaguing you, no matter what challenges you are facing right now, how are they a sign? What has Jesus got to do with it? Ask yourself that question. How is he going to display his glory in the midst of it? What does he have to say about it? So you should never be content to settle with the sign, but go forward to the glory. Don't be content until you've seen Jesus manifest your glory and you've believed in him. Because he is the true bridegroom. He is the lavish giver of all gifts. He is the master of the banquet who came to make the world run with wine to lead the party. So look at him. Believe him. Behold him and believe in him. Let's pray.